pushed into the promised land, and there are a lot of subjects that relate to that uh, situation, and one of them is what we start with in chapter 27. Now, we've got kind of two customs that are in conflict. You know, we're going, they're going into the land, and the land is going to be divided among the tribes, and within the tribes, among families and the tribes. And it was very important to keep the land and the family. In fact, you remember, they couldn't even sell the land. They would long-term lease it and get it back in the year of Jubilee. But the land needed to stay in the family. But another custom, or law, whatever you want to say, is that the inheritance was passed to the sons. Well, here you have a situation. You have these daughters uh, in chapter 27, verse 1, of a guy named Zelophehad. And he's got five daughters, but he had no sons. And their father died. And, well, yeah. The inheritance passes through the son, and he has no son. These daughters are concerned that the property won't stay in the family, and that the Zelophehad's name will not be preserved. What should they do about that? And I like what Moses did. In verse 5, Moses brought their case before the Lord. Now, Moses could have tried to answer this on his own. Various ways, various things you might think of that would be a way you could deal with that. But Moses doesn't try to do that. Moses brings it to God. We always need to do that. Any question needs to come to God. Now we find out God's answer in the scriptures. But instead of saying, you know, I think, I feel, I believe, you know, let's see what God says. And here's what God said. In verse 7, the daughters of Zelophehad are right in their statements. You shall surely give them a hereditary possession among their father's brothers. You shall transfer the inheritance of their father to them, and then from them to their sons. So if a man dies with only daughters, no sons, then the land passes through the daughters on down to the grandsons, so that the family stays, you know, the property stays within the family. Um... So, that, that's what God wanted. He goes ahead and clarifies some other details if there's no daughters or sons who have passed to, and so forth, so they can keep the property uh, where God wanted it to be. It's a, just a good thing when we let God answer those questions. Now, that turns out not to be the only question. And in the very last chapter of Numbers, we will revisit this issue with another question that comes up as a result of this answer. But the answer is, you can pass the property through the daughters if there are no sons. Comments or questions about that one? Okay, starting in verse uh, 15, Moses talks to God. And he asks God in verse 16 to appoint somebody to lead the people into verse 17, so that the congregation of the Lord will not be like sheep which have no shepherd. Now, Moses was not going to be able to enter the land. Do you remember why? Because he sinned by? Of the rock in the water and talking to the people. Yeah, he hit the rock twice and so speaking to the rock. He sinned, therefore he was excluded from entering the promised land. A lifetime of faithful service by Moses was more or less canceled out by that single act and he missed out on the promised land 
And I'll tell you, that shows you something right there. If Moses could not escape the consequences of disobedience, how do we think we would? After all that Moses had done for the Lord. But I love Moses' reaction here. He could be really resentful and mopey and just feel sorry for himself. Poor me. But he actually is thinking about the people. They're going to need a good leader. If they don't have a good leader, they're going to be a sheep without a shepherd. So he comes to God worried about the people asking him to appoint a good shepherd. And who is appointed? Joshua. Joshua. Who has been an assistant to Moses for a long time. God more or less passes the leadership of the people from Moses on to Joshua. Uh, remember that the leadership in terms of the priesthood in chapter 20 was passed from Aaron on to who? Eliezer, which was Aaron's son. So Joshua is going to take over the leadership. That's going to be a blessing to the people. We are really transitioning the whole policy in the, the this end of this uh, time in the wilderness. So that now it's going to be a new set of leaders that enter into the promised land. Do you have a comment or a question on chapter 27? Chapter 28 and 29. Wow. The, that'll be a channel, challenge to read if you tar, try to read it uh, because it gets kind of tedious. But I want to just summarize chapter 28 29. Actually, there's a lot of valuable information if you can sort it out. Basically, chapter 28 and 29 outline the offerings of the congregation of the Israelites to God. Now, along with what we read in chapter 28 and 29, there are simply individual offerings. There are times that as an individual worshiper, you need to come before God with a sin offering, a guilt offering, a peace offering, or whatever. But these aren't those. These are actually like the offerings for the, the, the Israel, the nation of Israel as a whole. And he starts out with the daily offering, then he goes to the weekly, the monthly, and then to various annual offerings, like at the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And really what this is, is just kind of a comprehensive summary. This would almost be like in a, I would put it in some kind of a table in the back of a book or something that kind of gives you the guide to all the offerings at all these different times. And uh, it's kind of tabulated for us here. Now, uh, there's just a bunch of things I want to say summarizing these two chapters. And they're in no particular order. I, I'm not going to try to get us to read these chapters or anything. It would be helpful for you to read them on your own or at least scan them sometime. But, but first of all... Um, there is kind of a pattern with sacrifices. Depending on the sacrificial animal, you, along with the animal, offer fine flour mixed with oil. You might call that a cake. And you offer a, a drink offering uh, with, uh, uh, with each animal uh, also. He speaks of... Uh, the, the drink offerings in various places um, and, and uh, for example uh, verse 7 then the drink offering with it shall be a fourth of a hen for each lamb in the holy place you shall pour out a drink offering of a strong drink to the Lord so you've got this uh, grain offering and drink offering associated with every animal now how much 
grain offering and drink offering depends on the size of the animal. The lamb is the smallest amount, the bull is the largest amount, the ram's in the middle. Because of the size of the animal. And uh, another thing I want to say, like the sacrifices, what he'll do is he'll like say, okay, you have a lamb in the morning and the afternoon every day. On top of that, you've got another lamb in the morning and the afternoon on Sabbath day. On top of that, you've got another group of animals every new moon, every month there. On top of that, you've got all the animals offered for the special sacrifices. Now, when you count up the animals, he's just adding. So you would offer the animal every day, normal, add on top of that some more for Sabbath, and then on top of that, on top of that. So you don't, it's not like when he gives the animals you offer the Passover, you also offer the daily animals on top of that. If it happens to be on Sabbath day, you have the Sabbath day ones on top of that. If it happens to be a new moon, which can't be with the Passover, but if it were, you'd offer that on top of that. They're additive. So you really accumulate animals in this. Now, it's incredible, incredible the amount of animals offered and sacrificed. This is just for the whole nation. Like I can say, it doesn't count any offerings for any just individual Israelite. But in the course of the year, it's 113 bulls, 32 rams, 1,086 lambs, more than a ton of flour, and a th- more than 1,000 bottles of oil and wine. That's a lot, don't you think? That's just for the congregation. What does that show you? get out of that? God's going to give them that much and he's going to expect some to that. Okay, that's one thing. They are going to really prosper in the land. <laughs> if they're going to be able to give this much stuff as sacrifice, this is going to be the land flowing milk and honey, but God does expect back a part of what he gives them. Good point. What else do you get out of that? That it's messy. Yeah, there's, there's some mess to this. Killing all these animals and draining the blood and so forth. The tabernacle must have gotten to be rather odoriferous, I imagine. Well, it shows, I mean, God's pretty important if you're giving him that much. Yes. <coughs> if you want to have fellowship with God, it's going to cost you something. You know, it's not something you can have cheap. You know, God is not just like, oh, I don't worry about it. I, I didn't, you know, you don't even worry about these sacrifices. Just, you know, no, you gotta, you got to invest something. And something else I think you see, it shows how great sin is. To have to have all these sacrifices. You wouldn't have to offer a single sacrifice if you weren't a sinner. You know, the sin is what leads to that. It shows you how bad that is. So there's a lot you get out of this. Now, it's amazing the percentage of the sacrifices that were in just one feast. Of all the feast days, does anybody know which feast day required way more animals than any other feast day? Feast feast time. Passover? No, good guess. Booths? Yes, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. 59% of the total requirements for bulls 40% 40% for rams and 36% for goats were just in that one eight-day festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. That was the biggie, and that's certainly reflected. Uh, 
the, the Feast of Tabernacles in chapter 29 goes all the way from verse 12 to verse 38. He gives a lot more attention to the Feast of Tabernacles than any of the other. Um, a couple other things I want you to notice. The fact that there was to be a morning and evening offering. You know, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. It's almost saying like their day had to start and end with a sacrifice. you got to remember God at the beginning of the day. You remember God at the end of the day. That's a, that's a cool idea. I think it shows that God's uh, the Lord of all of life. Then, here's something else that is interesting. The number seven. Now, you've noticed that before in the Bible, right? That the number seven is a biggie. It's kind of God's special number. Well, you've got the Sabbath day. That's the seventh day. That's a big day here. You've got seven feasts. The Sabbath, the beginning of the month, the Passover, the weeks, the trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Tabernacle. So he mentioned seven feast days. The two most important, Passover with unleavened bread and Tabernacles, each lasted seven days. There were seven days that he calls days of a holy convocation. The first and last day of unleavened bread, the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the first and last day of Tabernacles. They've got seven specially consecrated days. The seventh month had the most feasts. It had the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And in the majority of the annual feasts, the number of sacrifice was some multiple of seven. So you can really see the sevenness of God borne out in this sacrificial stuff. Now, here's one reason that you've got these two chapters right here. They're about to go into the land. This is going to start being important when they go in. They're going to start prospering and be offering all these sacrifices to God. After you read all of this, and I wish we had time to read all of 28 and 29, although it might put most of you to sleep as tired as you are at the moment. But if we, had, if we could read it, you know, you would realize why you never in the Bible see a priest sit down. You know, but when Jesus made the sacrifice for sin, Hebrews 10, he sat down. He had finished his work. An earthly priest, a Levitical priest, never got the job done. There was always more to do. All right, that's kind of a summary of those two chapters. Do you have a question or comment about 28 and 29? So they didn't do these through the wilderness? Or is he just reiterating? I don't think so. Yeah. I don't know where they'd gotten the animals to do it with through the wilderness. So I'm assuming much of this starts when they go into the wilderness. Now, you know, there may be something about that that I don't understand, but that's my assumption. <coughs> Other questions and comments? What's the significance to seven? Is there a significance to seven other than, you know, the earth is created in seven days or whatever for the world? Not that I know. It, I mean, numbers just had special significance. And maybe there are times you could see why. But I'm not sure there's a way to see the why on seven. God just kind of chose it as his special number. Now, I've heard people say things like, well, maybe three in the Trinity and four points of the globe, so that combines earth and heaven and seven. That seems kind of, uh, that's cool. But it seems more made up to me than something I can really see yeah. in the Bible. That's 10 for the, I mean, Hebrews 10 for the Christ sitting down. Yes, it was 10, 12, 11, 12, perhaps. Other questions or comments? 
Well, first, chapter 30 is an interesting chapter. It, it's all about vows. Now, you know, what would a vow be? Basically, I got a drink or I'll lose my voice. So. Um, basically, when you make a vow, you're promising to give something to God. And basically, if you make a vow to God, you better pay it. <laughs> you know, don't make a promise to God that you don't keep. Well, you shouldn't make a promise to anybody and not keep it. But the worst person to make a promise to and not keep it is God. So you got to keep your vows. However, there are certain kinds of sort of exceptions to that when it's a dependent woman whose vows affect their higher up. For example, if a wife makes a vow to give the family house to God <coughs> if God does a certain thing, well, guess what? She can't really like, it's not just her house. Her husband has authority, so he has the ability, if he cancels her vow the first time he hears it, then it's null. Because it obligates him. He is the one supporting her. She can't just vow something that belongs to her superior without his endorsing it. So that's the idea of this chapter, is that there, there, a vow is obligatory unless the person responsible for you cancels that vow when he first hears about it. And that's more than just to the board, right? That's to anyone, if it were her neighbor, and she said to her neighbor she would vow to give her... Something. Here he speaks specifically of vows to the Lord. Hadn't really thought about it with somebody else, but this chapter at least I think is just talking about vows to God. Yeah. Maybe it would work with other vows too. I hadn't really thought about it. But he keeps saying about the Lord, so I assume that's what he's talking about. Um, so now you've got several situations. Um, for example, let's just look at one of them. In uh, 30, 30 verse 3. If a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by an obligation to her father's house and her youth, and her father hears her vow and her obligation by which she has bound herself, and her father says nothing to her, then all her vows shall stand, and every obligation by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father should forbid her on the day he hears of it, none of her vows or obligations by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the father will forgive her because her father had forbidden her. You know, the father is financially responsible for her, and I guess responsible in any other way, and so if the first time he hears about her vow, if he says, nope, you know, I cancel that vow, then it's all. He has to essentially approve, or her vow is null and void, because her vow involves her father, he's the one she's dependent on. Now, it's the same thing in verse uh, 6 through 8, a woman who's engaged her vows can be canceled by her groom, uh, like when she gets married. Um, when, uh, yeah, when her, yeah, when she gets married, and then in uh, ten to fifteen, a wife's vows can be canceled by her husband. But now look at verse nine. But the vow of a widow or of a divorced woman, everything by which she's bound herself shall stand against her. So a single woman, a divorced woman widowed woman, whatever, she's on her own, then there's no way to cancel a vow. Because there's nobody responsible for her. That's basically the law of the vows. That's not real complicated. It's kind of interesting. Comments or questions about that? Yeah. Um, 
Okay, chapter 31. Do you remember that situation at Baal Peor when like the Moabite and Midianite women infiltrated the camp of the Israelites and seduced the Israelite men to immorality and idolatry? Remember who instigated that? Balaam. He advised that as a way of getting God to curse the people. And it worked. But God also wants vengeance taken against the Midianites. The Midianites were one of the groups allied there with the Moabites. Um, And so he he wants vengeance taken. And, And he sends Phineas as the one to to make war against them. Now, why would God want the Midianites wiped out? What's he thinking? They successfully got the Israelites sin once. Why would they not do it again? They're a spiritual threat then. You know, their influence may drag his people away from the Lord, plus... They have caused the people to be unfaithful. They have really, you know, what would you think about, okay, you're married to some woman, and your best friend talks her into, you know, having an affair with another guy. Would he stay your best friend if you knew about that? You know, he ought to be punished. You know, they have influenced God's people away from him as their exclusive husband God wants them punished is it moral to kill people no so was it wrong what they did here in exterminating the Midianites so is it moral to kill people God said that you should kill somebody. Yeah. It all depends on whether or not God authorizes it. Is it moral for me just up and kill somebody on my own? Well, of course not. That's Cain and Abel. But if God calls for the execution, he's the leader, he's the judge, he has the right to punish. And if he told somebody to execute it for him, they are authorized by him. They have the responsibility to go through with what God says. God knows what's right and he knows the appropriate punishment. Doesn't mean we can always retaliate. You know, if you think about that a little bit, think about David and Saul. Did David have the right just to punish Saul because of what Saul was doing trying to kill him? No. If God had told David to kill him, that would have been a different matter. So, the idea here is that God tells the Israelites to take vengeance on Midian. Phineas, who is uh, Aaron's grandson, who was the one that... You remember when uh, uh, Zimri had brought Cosby, the Midianite woman, before the camp and brought her to his tent, and Phineas goes with a spear and spears the two of them at once? This is kind of finishing off that work, taking care of the punishment against the the Midianites. And so, you know, in verse 7, they did just what God commanded. They killed all the males, including, verse 8, Balaam, who 
you know, Balaam is just a snake. You know, we talked about this a little bit already. That Balaam desperately wanted Balak's money. He was dangling in front of him if he'd cursed the Israelites. And he couldn't do it every single time he opened his mouth to curse them. God commandeered his mouth and made a blessing come out instead. And so, finally, he does what it says in verse 16. Behold, these caused the sons of Israel, through the counsel of Balaam, to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam's the guy who had given the advice to Balak to put the stumbling block before the Israelites to send those women in to influence the Israelite men to idolatry and immorality. And so Balaam ends up getting killed by the sword. That's kind of interesting. Remember the sword of the angel of the sword that the donkey averted. Well, he, he doesn't manage to miss out on the sword altogether here. He's killed because of his advising the Moabites to tempt the Israelites away from God. So they wipe out the Midianites here, this group of Midianites, uh, and they divide the spoil among the soldiers, among the ordinary people, and give a part of it to the Lord, uh, which is the appropriate thing for them to do. Okay, that's the extermination of the Midianites. Uh, do you have a question or comment about chapter 31? Yes, in <coughs> verse 6. Yes. It's talking about Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest. Yes. Who is in care? Who in whose care were the holy objects and the trumpets? Mm-hmm. Wasn't that someone else's job, not the priest's? Mm-hmm. Moses sent them a thousand from each tribe to the war, and Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the war with them, holy vessels and the trumpets for the alarm in his hand. I don't have a comment. Okay. Sure. I, I was just confused as to why he would be. Yeah. Um, I mean, he would be the one to blow the trumpet. Right. But I'm not sure what these holy vessels are. So. Okay. Good question. I have a question about verse 18. Mm-hmm. It says, But say the girls for yourselves who do not have sexual relations with a man. Mm-hmm. But wouldn't he not want them to have any relations with the Moabite women? He allowed them to have the single Moabite women. The Midianite, actually, here. And what's the verse that says about where Balaam was killed by the sword? Verse 16. And verse 8. Actually, verse 8 is where he's killed by the sword. Verse 16 mentions Anything else on chapter 31? 32. I think we need to look at this a little bit. This is kind of an interesting situation. Um, skip the names, but would somebody read chapter 32, verses 1 to 5? Now the people of Reuben and the people of Gad had a great, a very great number of livestock, and they saw the land of Jazar the, and the land of Gilead, and behold, this place was a place of poor livestock. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eleazar the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation. Don't read the names? No, whatever. I wouldn't have. I wouldn't read the names. Skip three. To these people. The land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock and your servants 
have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let it, this land be given to your servants for a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. Okay, now, here are two of the tribes. They have conquered from Og and uh, from Sihon this territory on the east side of the Jordan River, and these two tribes says, this is good for us. We'd like to just have our land here. We don't want the land across the Jordan that we're going to conquer. You know, this is good pasture land. We've got a lot of animals. Can we just have our inheritance here? Now, what do you think about that? I don't really know what to think about it. I don't know if that was a good thing. I don't know if it was a bad thing. That's what they're asking. But Moses hit the roof. He was not happy about this at all. Look at verse 6. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves sit here? Now why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? And he says, remember what happened? Remember how the Lord took vengeance on the one, ones who wouldn't uh, uh, conquer the land when they spied it out? And the Lord's anger burned and they were punished by wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Verse 14, now behold, you have risen up in your father's place a brood of sinful men to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all the people. Moses delivered one of his most sizzling speeches. I mean, he's like, whoa, this is outrageous. You want these guys to go in and conquer the land. You're just going to abandon them and discourage them. And you remember what happened to us 40 years ago. It's going to happen to us again. You know, it's like, you know, you're thinking only about yourself. And you're not thinking about the well-being of these other nine or ten tribes that, that you need to go in and help us conquer the land. <coughs> wow, that was pretty tough on Moses' part. What do you think about that? It's almost as if he's sad that he can't get in himself, and so it, now the others are not wanting to go in the promised land. He's like, well, I can't go in there. Why aren't you wanting to go in there? And then he's thinking back to the other time. He's just really angry. And why are you not wanting to go in there? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, maybe so. I had thought about that way, but it may be. I mean, I think he really sees this as, as being a rerun of Kadesh Barnea. We're going to have another 40-year wandering. Is that what's going to happen? Because I won't go in and conquer. You know, they're selfishly thinking, well, this line's good enough for us. We'll just stay here. You know, we got ours. See what you can do with yours. Moses is not happy. Now, would somebody read 16 to 19? Then they approached him and said, We want to build sheep folds here for our livestock and cities for our dependents. But we will arm ourselves and be ready to go ahead ahead of the Israelites until we have brought them to their place. Meanwhile, our dependents will remain in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the Israelites has taken possession of his inheritance. Yet we will not have an inheritance with them across the Jordan and beyond because our inheritance will be across the Jordan to the east. So what are these two tribes saying? We will still help you conquer the land, but we don't want it. Yes. They, they, you know, I don't know if they are just explaining 
or if they're saying, okay, we, we give, you know, we'll, we'll go in, that's fine, you know, let's let build the place for our people here, and then we'll go in and conquer. So I don't know if that was their original intention, or once Moses says what he says, they say they modify the plan, but either way, they say, okay, well, we'll do that. We're going to go across the men, and we'll conquer the land for these other tribes, and then we'll come back home. <coughs> what do you think about that? You know, sometimes, maybe you've been in this situation where, uh, where you do something, and somebody misunderstands you. And, you know, they just jump on your case. <coughs> And then you explain, but look, it's this, this, this. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was kind of funny. I've got to not give you details of this, but there was a situation earlier at the camp from the earlier days where there was something misunderstood. It was kind of comical when it was all said and done. But it had appeared that a couple of campers had rather flagrantly broken a rule. And so I was approached by some other staff people and tried to figure out what to do about it. <laughs> It has to be really funny. It was quite a misunderstanding of a misunderstanding. And one of those things, that gets, as it gets passed down, the story gets changed. It wasn't growing. It just, just changed. And I can't explain to you why or I'd give some things away. But, but it was like one of those things. One of the first things I said when I was approached about it is, well, who said it? And what evidence is there? And, well, part of it they knew and part of it they, they, we had to track it down. Once we tried, we tracked it down. It wasn't all that it appeared to me. But, but, you know, at the time you were like, okay, let's jump on this. Man, they did something outrageous. It, and it's very, wild, very helpful that we didn't do that because we really looked kind of stupid. Uh, <laughs> you know, but it happens. You know, it happens that, you know, you jump to a conclusion. Maybe, I mean, I think in this case it was a conclusion that would be reasonable to jump to given what was said. It's like the whole story wasn't quite told. And once you saw the whole thing, it's like, oh, wow, <laughs> no, that wasn't what we thought it was. So, I don't know if it's like that. Maybe it is. Maybe, maybe Moses just jumped to the conclusion that they weren't going to go in, and they were planning it all along. Or maybe once Moses says this, they suddenly say, oh, yeah, yeah, we'll go in. But either way, they offer this, this uh, option. Now, what's Moses going to say about that? Well, verse 20, Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will arm yourselves before the Lord for the war, and all of you armed men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven his enemies out before you, and all that, then okay. But if you don't, you're in big trouble. <laughs> so basically, Moses accepts that. I think that's, in many ways, I think this story brings out good in all the people. In one sense, it's interesting that Moses was willing to fight. They've already been fighting, but he's willing to fight again if necessary for, for the good of the people. I mean, I think there's some good in that. There's some encouraging things in, in Moses' you know, determination that God's will be done. I think there's good in the people responding non-defensively and saying, here's what we're going to do. And it's good that Moses is willing to listen. You know, sometimes you just decide, no, this is, I won't tolerate this, I can't stand this. Well, sometimes we need to listen. Sometimes if we heard the other side, we were like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I can see that. That happens in life. And so we've got to be willing to listen. I, I really appreciate Moses in that. That he's like, no, okay. If you only really do this, then that's cool. And even though he'd been really upset 
he was willing to be calmed down by this. But now they've got to do it, you know. This can't be something that they just say they're going to and they don't. It turns out to be more than just Reuben and Gad. Half of Manasseh decides to stay on the east side of the Jordan River as well. But the men from Gad, Reuben, and, and uh, the half of Manasseh cross over the Jordan. They help them conquer, and then they're sent back across. Comments and questions? Does it ever show that they went and checked with God about this? Because Moses just seems like he was giving the answer. That kind of seems like when God's giving them this special land, he's not going to God and listening to him. What we don't know is if Moses had a revelation from God about this or not. We are not specifically told that. It doesn't seem to me like later on in the scriptures there's any condemnation given of them having that land. So my guess is God approves in one way or the other. But that is a very good question. Sometimes we just don't know when it's not specifically said. Did he have a way of knowing God's will or not? Certainly, you're right. This would be the sort of thing you ought to consult the Lord and have his approval and opinion. So I, I don't know what it's it reminds me of what someone said yesterday about the child getting the toy and the parent having something, something so much better at home. Um, you know, the parent let the child get the toy, but his present would be so much better. So maybe it's kind of the same ordeal that, you know, God's gift was going to be a lot better, but hey, if they want to get something cheaper, then, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah, and there's a good bit of debate as to whether or not this really was the right thing. Was this a, you know, kind of a, 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 an act of faith? Or is this a rebellious thing? Did, did God want these two and a half tribes over here, or did he not? My reading of the rest of the Old Testament is I think God was okay with it. But now you might read it differently. So. Lauren? And one thing I noticed is that with the new territory that they covered, they still <coughs> conquered the entire promised land that he had given them. Like we yes. see that they conquered that entire area. So either way, God's plan was always fulfilled. Good point. Yes, good point. And they had conquered this land. God had given it to them. So. I tend to think it was okay, but I'm not sure. Other questions or comments? I check your schedule thing. I forgot to bring mine. What time is this supposed to be over? Oh, don't Everything's kind of messed up because these schedules aren't exactly right because of the society. They are so exactly right. It's still going to be in the same time. Yeah, that should be at the same time. About 245. Probably. 30, wait, uh, you don't have one. Yeah, I've got. 345. Yeah. 345. No, we're not in Bible classroom. We're in PM activity. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't think you can tell them that. I think it's 245. That's what I'm going to assume. <coughs> I'm not actually sure. Maybe 250. That was my question. Your, there your tags don't show them. Okay. Uh, so, chapter 33. Um, this sort of is an interesting chapter. Um, I'm sure you'll love to read it. Uh, it basically just gives you the wandering sites. You know, where all did they go through the wilderness? This kind of, you wonder if somebody must have written in a diary or something. But this just kind of gives you the travel. And, uh, you know, if you'll memorize all those sites, you'll know all those sites. Uh, you know, but it just shows you how long they went and how many places they were. Yeah, right. And it's evidence that they did it. You yeah. know, if they just said they went for 50 years, it's like, okay, they did. But whenever you have every little detail to their stops along the way, that just, it just helps you realize how real it is. Yeah, I agree. Good point. Yeah. But I do want you to look at the last part of chapter 33. Would somebody read verse 50 to 56? And the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho, saying, 
Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy all their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all their high places. And you shall take possession of the land and settle in it, for I have given you the land to you to possess it. You shall inherit the land by law according to your plans. To a large tribe you shall give a large inheritance, and to a small tribe you shall give a small inheritance. Wherever the lot falls for anyone and shall be his, according to the tribes of your fathers, you shall inherit. But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then those of them whom you let remain shall be as barbs in your eyes and as thorns in your sides, and they shall trouble, trouble you in the land where you dwell. And I will do to you as I thought to do to them. So when they go into Canaan, what did they need to do? Drive out the people living there. Drive out all the Canaanites. And what about their worship apparatus? Destroy that too. Destroy it too. Why? They didn't want any other idols in the land that they were living in. Why not? That seems to be a really big temptation. It's a really big temptation. That's a good way to put that. You know, you let these people or their worship implements stay, and it's just going to contaminate. It's just going to influence and corrupt the people. It's kind of like cancer. I've not had cancer, thank God, but some of you probably have or, or have had people in your family who have. I mean, you know, what if they find, you know, even, even sometimes they have the cancer on your face, you know, little places they take off and so forth. Some of that can be really serious, some of it's not serious at all. But imagine it was a pretty bad cancer, pretty serious cancer. You got a spot on now, what are they probably going to do with that spot on your face? They're probably going to take it off. Now, once they take it off, what's the next step they're going to take? Picture the face. Before that. Analyze. <coughs> Analyze what? The actual spot on your face. What they took off. No. What's still on your face. What's still on your face. They're going to take samples out of the skin right underneath what they took off. And they're going to examine it for what? Cancer. cancer cells. You can't leave any cancer cells still on there. If you didn't quite get it all, and there's some cancer cells still in that tissue, you don't want to have to take off any bigger chunk of your face than necessary, but you want to make sure it's all gotten. Because you leave some cancer cells behind what happens. Going to start spreading again. They start spreading again and it'll give you cancer back. You know, that's the way this is. You let some of those cool worship images and altars, or you let some Canaanites stay around and whatever, they're going to start spreading and corrupting, and, and there'll be some metastasis. Metastasis. Isn't that, what this, isn't that the word? You know what I mean, where the cancer spreads to another site. Where that and that's, that's our danger, is that, you know, the Canaan worship is going to be too exciting, too interesting, too, too appealing. And, and that's true for us. If we don't really stomp out sin, we just kind of dabble. I mean, this, I, I think I can do this in here. I'll try to do it appropriately. But just the other day, and you just think about this. I was talking with this guy, uh, both calling and messaging. 
He's a guy I've known for a long time, and he, off and on, he talks to me a lot. He's quit writing me this week, probably means he's not doing well again. But he, uh, he was really trying to change his life again. Really trying. He'd been calling me every day and really trying to change his life. And then he writes, like two days afterwards, that he messed up on the internet, as a lot of guys will do, by means of starting to look at pictures and things he shouldn't have on Facebook. You know, Facebook is a port of entry sometimes for people who want to look at things that they shouldn't look at. And so, you know, he really felt horrible. He didn't even write for two days because he was so ashamed, felt so guilty, felt so bad about himself, hated it, never wanted to do that again, just really upset him. I said, okay, why don't you delete your Facebook account? You know what he wrote me? He said, well, he said I, don't, I don't know really how, because I'm just going to have to... I'm going to have to be strong. I'm going to be, a, you know, just because I don't have that, I could, I could always find something to look at somewhere else. I said, okay, let me ask you this question. You know, did you get on to Facebook so you could see something? Or was it something you saw when you were on there that led you downhill? He said, oh, I, it was something I saw on there that led me downhill. I said, there's your answer to your question. You know, if I want to avoid sin... I destroy anything that's going to make it convenient for me. If you want to avoid out the Dollar Tree, then wipe out the idols. Destroy them. Burn them. Tear them up. Take out all the images, all the altars, and wipe them out. I'm not saying everybody has to destroy their Facebook, but if that's the thing that leads me down, I'm much better off never ever again seeing Facebook than losing my soul. We are too... Chummy with sin and sinful instruments. Maybe it's, you know, the the six pack in the refrigerator, whatever. Maybe maybe it's your buddies that are doing drugs or doing whatever. I mean, whatever you have to get rid of. You may have to cut off some relationships, you may have to destroy some stuff, you may have to just avoid certain places. But the point is you get rid of the things that are contaminated, they're contagious that are dragging you down and dragging you away from God and into sin. That's fundamental. Why do I want anything more than I want God? I mean, maybe these altars look really cool. I don't know, maybe these images were really ornate and special and, you know, all that. Maybe they, maybe these Canaanites were really nice people and you sure did hate to destroy them. But if they're going to lead you away from God, destroy it. So I think that's an important lesson even for us. Um, comments and questions on chapter 33. When you said he talked about how like he would just be able to find something else, then he's like, well, then get rid of the internet. I mean, it's one of those things where... I think he meant not even just on the internet. Oh, okay. But you're right, yes. He, I, of, I don't think he meant there. It's kind of all about the heart, too. Like You need to be able to have your heart ready to get rid of the sin in your life. Otherwise, you're going to find ways to refine it. Absolutely. There is no way to totally eliminate the possibility of sinning. But... Getting rid of things that are really tempting is a wise idea. You know, is there any way to completely avoid drinking if you're just determined to drink? Well, no. But that's not the same as saying, well, just go ahead and have a six-pack in the refrigerator then. No! Don't make it that convenient! If that's your problem, you know, don't go buy, don't go buy, buy the bar. I mean, you know, do things that are smart. Will will destroying all the the altars and images and all keep them from idolatry automatically? No, but it'll be a help. Let's do anything that helps us.
We're just too much, we're reluctant to give up. We think, you know, what did Jesus say? Pluck out your eye, cut off your hand. You know, whatever. Other thoughts? Uh, chapter 34. Uh, you've got the dividing up of the land. Now they're not in there yet, but he tells them how it's going to be divided, or at least kind of what the boundaries are going to be like, and, and then they're going to uh, kind of divide up the land and choose from there. Um, and Eliezer and Joshua would be kind of the co-chairman of the committee that decides which tribes get what part of the land. And that's all I'm going to say about chapter 34. Uh, chapter 35, you've got these cities of refuge and, and the cities of the Levites in general. Basically, the Levites got 48 cities. They did not get a territory. They got 48 cities. More or less four per tribe. Not exactly, exactly, but more or less four per tribe. And some of them were priestly cities. The rest of them were Levitical cities. Um, and he, he cites them, talks about them, and so forth here. And of these 48 cities, six were chosen as cities of refuge. What's a city of refuge? It's a city that someone can go to if they accidentally broke a law. Which law? Um, if they accidentally killed someone. Yes, that's it. Yeah. Involuntary manslaughter or whatever. So that they could avoid the avenger of blood killing them. They go to the city of refuge. There were three on the east side of Jordan, three on the west side of Jordan, kind of evenly distributed north to south. And that way there would be a city of refuge relatively close for anybody to run to if they accidentally killed somebody so that the avenger of blood did not kill them. Now, how would you know if somebody's killing somebody was accidental or on purpose? Okay, not sure how would the eyewitnesses know. You stage an accident. So. What? Well, like, I was just saying that you can, you can, stage, an, you can stage an accident. Right, so how do you really know if a, if a killing was just an accident or if it was really murder? Uh, well, yeah, God, but... You don't. God's not always going to tell you. Well, I think there's some things that are pretty good evidence. <clears throat> I mean, you can always look at the body. I mean, like how people can examine, like whether he was strangled. You could see fingerprints on the okay. neck. Was a weapon used? Mm-hmm. You know, was this? Uh, was there some kind of instrument of killing that was used in that? And did, was there enmity? Was there a problem between them? Was there a long-term grudge? Or were they best buds? You know, was your best friend you probably didn't kill him purposely. But somebody you run around on your wife and you hate their guts, you probably kill them purposely, especially if there was a weapon involved. So this was the Levitical cities were only uh, to be used for people who these these are cities refuge only for the people who really were guilty of involuntary manslaughter. And they had to have a trial to determine whether you were allowed to stay there or not. You know, if if the, they decided no, it was purposeful killing, then you were handed over to the Avenger of blood. Now it's kind of interesting. So these six Levitical cities were were where people guilty of involuntary manslaughter could go and be ref, have refuge until the time of the high priest death, and then they could leave that city. Um, because why did the Levites get cities as an inheritance instead of a territory, instead of a land area? Because they were 
Because they were supposed to be scattered among the other tribes. And why were they supposed to be scattered? Because of something Levi did, but I don't remember what it was. What did Levi do? They killed Simeon and Levi went and killed all the... Purposely killed the Shechemites. It's interesting, these cities of refuge are people who non-purposely kill people. <coughs> um, question or comments about that? What exactly was the Avenger of Blood? The nearest of kin who would kill the person who killed the, the relative. <coughs> Interesting that they're dividing up the land like this before they ever go in there. Yes. I just find that cool. Is there any difference when they go in and in Joshua they divide up the land again? Uh, it, it, it's the same. Now this is more just the, in many cases, this is telling what they're supposed to do and the specifics are given in Joshua. Say a word about chapter 36 before I run out of time, and that is uh, we got another problem. Back to the daughters of Zelophehad. Here is the problem. Um, what if one of these daughters of Zelophehad, they are from the tribe of Manasseh, and there is outside of the tribe? The land passes through the man. And so that would end up meaning that another tribe has a piece of land in this tribe's inheritance. And that won't work. And so they, they ask for more clarification about that point. How would they do that? And again, they waited on the word of the Lord, and God said, if your daughter wanting to inherit the property because there was no, you had no brother, you have to marry inside the tribe. Otherwise, you don't get to pass on to you. Because otherwise, it'd be just a patchwork. You'd have this tribe's land, but you had other tribes that had little pieces of that all around. So God thinks of everything. And uh, I think a, a very interesting way to conclude the book, just seeing that God is really giving them detailed instructions. It's going to really help them when they end up the land. Okay, comments or questions on all of that and on numbers? Good all the verification of things like that, like where the people are asking, okay, what do we do in this situation? I don't know. Not that, we don't really know what we're going to do, but they did want. They want to know what God's will is. Yeah. Amen. That's the right thing. Amen. Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate a lot you guys being in here. You paid great attention. You know, it makes me sleepy eating lunch and uh, not getting my nap in. That's not young people. But you all have been up late and you get up early and you continue to be alert and want to pay attention. And so that's great. It's awesome. Make these last few hours count, count, count. You know, try to be a blessing to those around.